We're going to be in John chapter 16, but I want us to appreciate what we read and studied earlier from John chapter 14, verses 16 through 20, because we're going to be spending some time talking about um, the Holy Ghost, because that's going to come up, the Comforter, in chapter 16. And it's important for us to walk into 16 with this, these words uh, immediately in front of us. We will see in John chapter 16 that the Holy Ghost has two separate ministries, one to the world and one to uh, God's elect. So starting in John chapter 14, verse 16 through 20. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever, even the spirit of the truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him, but ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, or rather orphanless. I will come to you yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. But ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and ye in me, and I in you. Now flip over to John chapter 16. Um, You're going to notice that I'm going to include the article the in front of the word truth because it's in the Greek. It wasn't brought over in the English by the translators, but it's in the Greek. And it's obvious why it would be there because we know that Jesus is the truth. So the fact that the, um, the God wrote it that way helps us to appreciate who he's talking about here. John chapter 16, verse 1. These things have I spoken unto you that ye should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known the Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, ye may remember that I told you of them. And these things I say not unto you, at, these things said I not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. But now I go my way to him that sent me, and none of you askest me, whither goest thou? But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. Nevertheless, I, the truth, tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. For when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father, and ye see me no more. Of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the spirit of the truth, is come, he will guide you into all the truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but so whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I, that he shall take of mine, and shall show it unto you. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go to the Father." Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, 
What is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him. And he said unto them, Do ye inquire amongst yourselves of what I said, A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me. Verily, verily, I say unto you, That ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice. And ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrows shall be turned into joy. A woman, when she is in travail, hath sorrow, because her hour is come. But as soon as she is delivered of the child, she remembereth no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. And ye now, therefore, have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. And in that day ye shall ask me nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Heretofore have ye asked nothing in my name. Ask, and ye shall receive, that your joy may be full. And thus is the reading of God's word, and all his children say, Amen. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we pray thee now that you would pour out your spirit among us. Compass about that we might forget all about all the thoughts, cares, and concerns of this present evil world. And think exclusively on Jesus Christ, whom the Spirit doth testify of. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit this morning about um, the Holy Ghost, because we're, that's where John chapter 16 takes us. Um, just as a point of review, we started last week up in verse 1, and we talked about how the Lord is warning his disciples that um, trouble is coming their way. The Bible uh, promises a couple of things. Persecution and tribulation are among those things that he promises us. And much of it comes from being within what I would refer to as the carnal, not the carnal church, but the worldly church. It comes from the false church. The Bible presents a couple of different women before us, and particularly in the book of Revelation, it represents it presents the true church as a chaste virgin. That is what the Apostle Paul says by virtue of the Holy Ghost speaking in him, that the church is, that, he, that the Lord wants us to be presented to him as a chaste virgin. There's another church spoken of in the book of Revelation, and it's the harlot. It's the one that commits spiritual adultery with the world and fornication with the world. It is that church that um, was manifest uh, in a very obvious way when the Lord was walking about the uh, Jerusalem and preaching in, all of, in Judea and the coast roundabout. That was where the persecution came from for him. It was from the religious community, and that's whom you can first expect persecution to come from is the religious uh, community. Who was it that um, arrested Jesus, and who was it that persecuted him but the religious community amongst whom he ministered? It was the scribes, the Pharisees, the elders, and the people of the leadership of the Jewish people. They persecuted him, and then consistent with what the Scripture uh, speaks about in Revelation, it was the religious community who then, operating underneath the authority of the secular community, um, nailed Jesus to the cross and crucified him. And so when you see those two communities come together... Um, the religious community and the secular community, it goes very poorly for the church in terms of its persecution. We know in Revelation chapter 12, the Lord speaks about how um, Satan is cast out and he persecutes those that keep the Lord's commandments. The Lord has said several times here in John chapter 15 about we should be obedient to him and keep his commandments. Those that love him um, are exhorted to keep his commandments, and we do in a positional sense because the Lord has imputed his righteousness to us. So the persecution that takes place in the church comes underneath the umbrella of the dragon, underneath the umbrella of Satan, and then manifests itself in the way we are treated in the church. 
Now, he says in the first verse there that he tells us these things that we would not be offended, meaning we would not be drawn into sin, we would not be um, um, go out of the way, but we would always behave ourselves in a manner that would be honorable and, glorif- and glorifying to the Lord. Now, if you had, if you read this book, I, I put a nice summary in here about what you can expect in the church. Um, who are going to be the individuals that persecute the Christians in the church? So in this list here, I say grievous wolves. These are descriptions that are, I'm quoting directly from the scripture. Grievous wolves are going to enter in, ravening wolves in sheep's clothing, false prophets in sheep's clothing, false apostles, false teachers, false brethren, deceitful workers, unruly and vain talkers, and deceivers. What do they look like is my next category. They look like ministers of righteousness. They look like sheep, fellow Christians. They look like brothers, which are fellow Christians. They look like apostles, teachers, workers, and they are from your own selves. They look like your own selves. How do they get into the church? Well, the Lord tells us. Unawares, brought in, crept in, unawares. And the Bible tells us what they're going to do. So just as the Lord says here, I'm warning here, what's going to happen, he has throughout his scriptures warned us. What shall they do? They lie in wait to deceive. They not spare the flock. They lose, use slight or trickery of men. They use cunning craftiness. They beguile. They bewitch. They corrupt the word of God. They speak perverse things, bring in damnable heresies, subvert whole houses, corrupt your minds from the simplicity that is in Christ. They preach another Jesus. They deny the Lord that bought them. And they turn the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And they cause us to be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. They preach false gospels. They try to bring us into bondage. And they cause you to not obey the truth. So all of those warnings are in Scripture. And there's quite a number of them there scattered throughout the Bible. But it's nice to have them all in one list there for us. But the Lord has said, hey, I have told you these things that you should not be offended, not be drawn into sin, not be caused to do things that would, like I say, would bring disgrace upon yourself or cause people to think poor of the church. So in verse 2, he says, they'll put you out of the synagogue. So how does that apply to us? They're going to put you out of the church. So if you are put out of the church, you want to be put out of the church because you're a zealous for the truth. You're a zeal, you have a, you're a zeal, zealot for Christ himself. You do not want to be the one who's put out because you're obnoxious, you're unruly, and you're a heretic. Um, so that does happen in churches where people put out for those reasons, and no doubt they think themselves just in all the things that they have done. But God helps us delineate that. So they're going to be put. You're going to be put out of the church, just as um, people were in the scriptures put out of the synagogue, and they were, as the apostle Paul said, that he compelled them to blaspheme. So they do these things, he says, because they have not known the Father, nor have they known me, who is the truth. They have not known Christ. So. And he says, I've told you in advance so that when it happens, you'll know that I warned you about these things. And he says here that he has not told you these things from the beginning um, because I was with you. What he means by that is I have not told you in the great detail that I'm telling you now about why they are doing this. It's rooted in the fact that they don't know me. It's rooted in the fact that they have hated me without a cause. It's rooted in the fact that you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. We know that the world is at enmity. Um, with the church. And any man who's a friend of the world is not a friend of God, Scripture tells us. So now we're down in verse 5. Here he says, now I go to my way. I'm going my way, which means he's going through the cross to him, his father, that sent him. 
and none of you ask me whither goest thou. Well, they're not asking him here, but they did ask him earlier in John chapter 13, um, verse 36. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? And Jesus answered him, whether I go, thou cannot follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. So this issue has come up with them, but right now he says, your hearts are full of sorrow. You're not asking me now where I'm going. His hour has come. He's going to the cross, and he will be uh, on the cross actually the very next day. So things are, are coming to a head here in terms of the persecution and the, of him personally and the fulfillment of uh, prophecy. Verse 6, he says, But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your hearts. I want us to appreciate that, you know, in Hebrews 4.13, it says that all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. In Jeremiah, the Lord presents the hearts of man to us. It is um, desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. And he asks the question, who can know it? Well, the Lord knows it. He knows our hearts, and he knows what our fears are, he knows what our thoughts are, he knows what our cares and our concerns are. And so we have to appreciate that he is using the word comforter, and that's the context of what's presented before us here, to help comfort them about what's about to take place. He has told them, um, plain as can be, what lies in store for him. Back in Matthew um, chapter 16... He had uh, shared with them after the apostle uh, Peter had made that wonderful profession of faith in uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Scripture says, From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again the third day. So he has shown them, he's been teaching them about how he must go. Not like I'm going to go there and boy, things are going to get out of hand here, you know, and maybe there's going to be a mob that's going to grab me and and lynch me in some way. It's, It's not like things are out of control, but he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer these things. He must be killed and he must be raised the third day. So when he's going to start talking about here about, well, there's going to come a time when, um, for a little while you won't see me, and then for a little while then you will see me. Um, there's a couple of meanings that we'll get to on, when we get down a few more verses. But he has laid everything out before them. Their hearts are troubled. They don't understand why he's going. They don't understand that he has to go to the cross to redeem his people from their sins. They don't understand that. They do not have a full apprehension of the depravity of man. And nobody does the full apprehension of it until um, probably till we get to glory. But then the scripture says the former things shall not be remembered anymore. Once the Holy Ghost comes upon us, which is the second ministry of the Spirit, as it's listed here, um, we can appreciate our sin. We know in Romans chapter 2, might be around verse 18, that he talks about, Know ye not that it is the goodness of God uh, that leadeth thee to repentance, that causes you to repent. It is the goodness of God, it is the Holy Ghost working on our hearts and convincing us that we are sinners, that we would then turn to the Lord um, to repent. But the disciples do not yet understand that because they have not received the Holy Ghost. What he's saying to them, he's telling them these things, but it's, it's, um, it's falling on, dears, on ears that cannot apprehend and understand. And they are seeing things that they cannot perceive and understand either. And so here, again, he's having this conversation with them, and he's telling them that sorrow has filled your hearts. Sorrow has filled their hearts. They don't understand everything that has to take place here. So he says in verse 7, 
Nevertheless, and in the Greek, it's nevertheless, I, I, the truth, uh, I, I, the truth, tell you, it is expedient for you that I go away. If I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. One of the things that they need to appreciate, and I think something that's important for us to appreciate as well, is that because Christ went through the cross, and he's going to talk about that further here, and then sent the comforter, Christ is with each Christian individually. That is one of the many things that sets apart Christianity apart from other religions. Many other religions worship uh, individuals that are dead. And when that individual was alive on the earth, it might be in a different location. And so though you were separated them from either place and time, only a few people could be with that particular prophet at any particular time and would hear their comforting words. Not so for the Christian. In the context of uh, space and time, the disciples were with Christ and they could hear his wonderful words and they could be comforted by both his presence and by the things that they saw him do. But if he happened to be in another city than they were, well, then they wouldn't have that comfort because they're not with him. Well, we are separated from Christ by both place, the person of Christ, by both place and time. Nevertheless, he is with each of us individually. And so each person here has the comforter within them, which is, he's made it clear here, and also in John 14, the comforter is the spirit of Christ. It's Christ himself. We know that in John chapter 1, verse, uh, John, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7, it says that you know, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one. To have one is to have all of them indwell you. So if they have the Holy Ghost indwell you, is to have the Spirit of Christ, which is Christ in you, which, of course, is to have the Father in you as well. So we have that. Had Christ not gone to the cross and expiated our sins and redeemed us unto himself, we would not have the benefit of having the Holy Ghost live in us, and we would not have that, that wonderful sense of comfort. So it is expedient for them, and it is expedient for all Christians that Christ go to the cross, go to the Father, from whence he sends the Holy Spirit. So we all enjoy that wonderful comfort. So imagine today Jesus was in Jerusalem, and here we are in San Mateo speaking about him. It's not the same thing. We would not have that wonderful comfort. He needs to be in here, in this room with us, for us to enjoy and appreciate and feel that comfort. Well, he is, and he says that when two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with you, and there I am among you. And so that is a statement, of course, that is only true for the saints. When we are gathered in his name, which we are this morning, he is right here among us. So he says, it's expedient for you, it is good for you, and necessary for you that I go away, that the Comforter will come to us. I'm still in verse 7. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And that is what he's making clear here. I'm going to go to the Father, and then I'm going to send the Holy Ghost to you. And when he has come, verse 8, he will reprove or convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So as we read back in John chapter 14 about the Holy Ghost, I wanted to us to appreciate that, that the world cannot receive him. He says that in verse 17 of John 14, the spirit of the truth, which is, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. And he has told us in John chapter 16 that they're going to persecute you because they don't know me. John chapter 17 verse 3 says, and this is life, eternal life, that they know thee, the one true God in Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. If you don't know Christ, if you don't know God, you do not have, you do not have salvation. So 
he's telling him, telling us here that the that the world cannot receive the Holy Ghost. And then in John 15, he tells us in verse 19 that I have chosen you out of the world. So there's this delineation and there's this separation that we see all the way in from Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, all the way to Revelation 22, 21. There's a separation between the elect and the non-elect. They're in the world um, and of the world. We are in the world because we live here, but we are not of the world. God separates us. We receive the Holy Ghost. They do not receive the Holy Ghost. We, in a gracious way, and that's following these verses here, that begins in verse 13, we receive the teaching of the Holy Ghost that we might appreciate who Christ is. They are convicted of their sin by virtue of the Holy Ghost. And he says that here, and he uses the same word there. In verse 8, it says, and when he has come, he will reprove the world. That Greek word means convict. And it's the same word that the Lord uses in John chapter 8, verse 46, when he says, speaking to the people, which of you convinceth me of sin? It's obviously not talking about the conversion of the heart, like you, which of you can kind of convince me that I have done something wrong or done something sinful? No, he's saying, which of you could, in an objective court of law, convict me of sin, of anything I have done? It cannot be done. We know that eventually the scriptures are going to teach us that with respect to ourselves, who can lay anything to the charge of God's elect, for it is God that justifieth, you know, it is Christ that has died on our behalf. The world cannot convict us of sin either because we're united with Christ. So he's laying out here before us that he can convict, the Holy Spirit can convict the world of sin, and that's what the Holy Ghost is going to do. And of righteousness and of judgment. In verse 9 he says, of sin, because they believe not on me. If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you are condemned uh, by virtue of your sins. There is no salvation available to you. There is no way that your sins are expiated. Um, You have no excuse for your sins. You'll be convicted of them. And he had already said that over in verse 22 with respect to Israel. Now he's lumping them in with the world in verse 22 of chapter 15. He says, if I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had sin, meaning the sin of unbelief, the sin of disbelief. But now they have no cloak for their sin. Jesus came and did um, many, and according to this is a quote, infallible proofs. He did many infallible proofs before them about who he was and, um, and that redemption is available uh, in him and through him, and yet they rejected him. So they have no excuse and no cloak for their sin. Of the rest of the world, that can be said he was in the world. The world was made by him, and the world knew him not. They did not believe on him. The world has rejected Christ, and you can certainly appreciate that in what we see in this world when people use his name as a byword. People that have no interest whatsoever in the true and living God will take Jesus' name as a curse word and a byword. They have rejected him, and they will get angry at you, as the Scripture tells us, because they, when you attempt to... Um, witness to them, they'll be angry at you because they reject Christ, and they reject Christ because they hate God who sent him. It's all a package deal. So um, they will be convicted of their sin because they believe not on Jesus. There's no forgiveness for them because they do not believe on the one um, who is the source of forgiveness. Of righteousness, he says in verse 10, because I go to my Father and ye see me no more. Now, I realize that the language is enigmatic because he's going to say, well, you'll see me no more than you'll see me again, and then you won't see me, but then you will see me. Um, What this means here is, and this is another thing that sets Christianity apart from every religion on the planet, 
We have a risen Savior. There is no body. When Jesus rose from the dead, he presented himself alive to many people. The First Corinthians talks about how he was um, seen by over 500 people at the same time. So that's a collaborative testimony about um, his resurrection. And then in Acts chapter 1, he goes over to the Mount of Olives on a very public way. And up he goes into glory, carried up into glory out of the sight of people's eyes. The fact that you don't see him anymore means he was accepted by the Father. And the scripture says that he sits down at the right hand of the Father in his Father's throne. Therefore, he's righteous. So the world will be convicted of of righteousness because of his righteousness. All three of these verses, 9, 10, 11, are speaking about Christ in particular. Of judgment, because um, the prince of this world is judged. Christ says, and I think it's in Luke, maybe chapter 4, don't write that down, that he beheld Satan as lightning cast to the earth. Revelation chapter 12 speaks about that at all, about how Satan, who who used to accuse the brethren before God, was cast out. Satan has been overcome. He's the prince of the power of the air. Scripture says that he is the god of this world, and he has been overcome. Christ has overcome Satan. He's destroyed his works. He has overcome this world. And as a result of that, he's, he's spoiling the strong man's house, as the parable goes, and um, he is taking his people out of the kingdom of darkness and placing them into the kingdom of light. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, it speaks about Christ. It says, For as much then as the children, that would be the children of, of God, are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. So the scripture is describing the power of death unto Satan. We know that death entered in through sin. And that came from uh, Satan. Um, And so God uh, has uh, overcome Satan. And so because the prince of this world is judged, his kingdom is judged as well. And all of those that are part of it as judged. Now in verse 12 he says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Can't bear them now, but there will become a time when I will lead you or teach you in all truth. And so this is a wonderful segue to the next section. But we have to appreciate that again, He's been with them for three and a half years, and he's been teaching them things, and he's been sharing things with them. And he had said that, remember, when he talked about how they were um, um, friends, because I have shared things with you um, from my father. That's in John fifteen fifteen. It says, Henceforth, I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my father... I have made known unto you. So we shared things from the Father to them. We're going to see a parallel here in the next couple of verses about this Holy Spirit shares things from Christ. So what we have from Christ comes from the Father um, through Christ and then via the Holy Ghost. So he's been sharing things with them, but they cannot receive it. um, One of the things he's been sharing with them is about the spiritual kingdom, about spiritual Israel. And the disciples, as we know, cannot get it out of their heads that um, not only is the world going to reject them, um, but so is uh, national Israel is going to reject them. They keep thinking that the Lord is going to restore the physical throne of David. And they even talk to that as they're walking out to the Mount of Olives to be taken, as he's being taken up into glory. Um, they even bring that uh, question up in verse 6. 
They're walking out with him, and when and it says, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Um, have you not been paying attention to what we've been talking about for three and a half years? Well, yes, they have been paying attention, but they don't understand it. So graciously, you know, and gently the Lord says, I have many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. God is going to work through the Holy Ghost to share the truth with them about uh, what things are going to happen. And that's prophesied in the book of Joel, chapter 2, verse 28, about how he will pour out his spirit among men and their children and their daughters shall you know, dream dreams and they'll, they'll prophesy. And so we have from this point to the rest of the Bible, we have the Holy Ghost inspiring the scripture so that we would appreciate and understand the meaning of what Jesus teaches when he was with his um, disciples. And indeed, all of the things that we can appreciate are taught in the Old Testament because all of the scriptures testifies of, of Christ. So, verse 13, he says, how be, how be it when he, the spirit of the truth, is come, he will guide you into all the truth. What is this Holy Ghost ministry to us? It's to teach us about the truth. Not just truth, but the truth. To teach us about Christ. And indeed, you know, the Lord says that in John uh, chapter 5, maybe verse 13. Um, Search the scripture, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. The Holy Ghost has to open the scriptures to us that we might learn what is written therein about Christ. Now, he's not going to teach us all the truth in the context of all the truth that can be known about an infinite God, but he's going to teach us all the truth that he's placed in Scripture so that we might appreciate that God would um, have us to know those things that he has set uh, before us. Now, this is just another little little side note here about the different um, Bible versions, is that, as I've shared with some of you, this Bible is 2,900 plus or minus has more words in the Greek New Testament than the other Bibles, which means to me that there's a problem because God has a copyright on his Bible. In Revelation chapter 22, he says that, I testify unto every man that heareth the words of the prophecy of this book. If any man shall add unto these things, in other words, more truth than he would have us to know, if any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. Verse 19, and if any man shall take away from the words of the book of this prophecy, in other words, not teaching wall truth, God shall take away his part out of the book of life and out of the holy city and from the things that are written in this book. So that's a very sobering reminder. I personally wouldn't touch the ministry of trying to translate a Bible because you better do it right. The stakes are very high here, but I'm setting this before you. One Bible is 2,900 words shorter than the other one, so by virtue of the Spirit, you need to figure out which one that is. And I've written a book helping you to appreciate the veracity of that statement and where you can find it, because I believe the Lord has taught us, is going to teach us through His Spirit, all of the truth that He has set uh, before us. So in verse 13 continues here, for he shall not speak from himself, of himself, or from himself. The Holy Ghost is not Um, teaching us things independent of the Father and of the Son. Again, 1 John 5, 7. They are all one being. But whatsoever he shall hear, which is what Christ said. I read that to us a minute ago. Christ teaches us what he has heard from the Father, and he has told that to his disciples. The Holy Ghost is going to teach us what he hears from the the, the Son. And that is consistent with what we find 
throughout the rest of the Bible. In the book of Acts, when the, um, the Lord inspired the pen of Luke to write this to um, Theopolis, he says in verse 1 and verse 2, in verse 3, he says, The former treaties have I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. Now remember that the, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the fact that the former treatise was written to Theophilus means, he's speaking of the book of Luke, that came from the Holy Ghost. Verse 2, until the day in which he, that would be Jesus, was taken up, after that he, Jesus, through the Holy Ghost, had given commandments unto the apostles whom he had chosen. Christ is running the show. He's sitting in the Father's throne uh, with him, and he's working through the Holy Ghost to have the disciples and all the saints do the things that he wants to do as he sends the gospel out into the world, and they begin to um, work um, subordinate to the Lord as Jesus builds his church. And verse 3, he says, To whom also he showed himself alive after his passion by many infallible proofs. So... The Lord has proved himself that he he rose from the dead. Um, So again here in verse 13, it talks about he will show you things to come, which he has done through the additional, uh, the epistles in the scripture here. He shall glorify me, Christ speaking of himself, he the Holy Ghost, and this is another thing you should appreciate, is he uses the personal pronoun with respect to the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost is not some ethereal thing, but it is God. The Holy Ghost is God. So he's saying he, the person of the Holy Ghost, shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine the things that I give him, and he shall show it unto you. Verse 15, all things that the Father hath are mine. Therefore said I that he, that would be the spirit of the truth, shall take, same Greek word, receive of mine, and he shall show it unto you. So Jesus, as I said, goes from the Father to the Son to the Holy Ghost to you and to me. Verse 16, now it gets a little enigmatic here. A little while, and ye shall not see me, and again a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go unto the Father. Now over in verse 25, he says, These things have I spoken unto you in Proverbs, but the time is coming when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but shall show you plainly of the Father. And how is he going to do that? Through the Holy Ghost. Well, he'll be speaking directly to our hearts. So this is enigmatic, and the Bible tells us it's enigmatic because he's speaking in a proverb. So, again, we have this issue of you're going to see me, then you won't see me, uh, then you will see me, then you won't see me. Um, And the next several verses deal with that issue here. So I want us to appreciate there's a couple of things in view here. One of them, obviously, is his death, burial, and resurrection. His death, burial, a little while you won't see me. Then after his resurrection, for a little while you will see me. But then as they bounce this question back and forth here in verse 17, um, he appends to it because... I go to the Father. Verse 17, Then said some of his disciples among themselves, What is this that ye say unto us? A little while, and ye shall not see me. And again, a little while, and ye shall see me, because I go unto the Father. Superficially, again, it's the death, burial, and resurrection. You don't see him, then you see him. But then he's taken up into glory in Acts chapter 1, where you do not see him until you receive the Holy Ghost then you do see him because he's in your heart. And the Holy Ghost ministry is to reveal to you all of the things of Christ. And so then again, as I said before, the, um, one of the things that differentiates Christianity from the other religion is Christ is with us every moment of every day and will be with us every moment and every day until eternity 
passes, which shall never pass. He will always be with us and we will always see him because he's poured out his spirit in our hearts. So then we will see him. So that takes us all the way down to uh, verse uh, 20, and where that, that is the answer to that question, is it has, has two layers of meaning. One is the superficial, and the other is the spiritual. You will see him um, because he has gone through the cross to the Father. In verse 20, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Well, we know that the cross is coming and that the Lord um, was ridiculed, and I've no doubt that the uh, Sadducees, the scribes, the Pharisees, and the elders were um, laughing when he was up on the cross. They had their way, so they thought. They had their way where Christ was appeared to be made an imposter. When he was on the cross, they said, you know, if thou be the Son of God, if God delight in thee, come down now from the cross and save thyself. And so the others up on the cross, the other two individuals uh, initially you know, derided him. Um, And so the world was um, rejoicing when he went on the cross. But the disciples and those that um, that loved him were in great sorrow. Now, what's interesting is the language here that the Lord uses. He doesn't say your sorrow shall be um, replaced by joy, like you were very sad about something, uh, but now you're happy about it because that's been, been replaced. The cause of the sorrow is what now makes you joyful. It's the same individual. It was his death that caused sorrow, and it's the resurrection of the same individual now that brings you joy. And he says down in verse 21, uh, actually verse 22, and your joy no man taketh from you. Well, obviously it's not just a superficial joy. It's the joy that we talked about before, which is the uh, fruit of the Spirit. But we're joyful because he's risen from the dead forever and he's in us and that joy can never be taken away from us. He is victory, uh, has victory over the world, over Satan, over sin, over all things. He is our king and he is our Lord, Lord and he ever rules and reigns in, in heavens and in, in glory. So that is a joy that can never be taken from us. So the cause of the sorrow is also the cause of the joy. The joy was, the sorrow was turned into joy uh, through the resurrection. Mm-hmm. Now, in verse 21, he uses this interesting analogy, which uh, I would hope that we would appreciate that God has ordained everything for his glory, including the reproductive process between men and women and the birthing process of the uh, child, that it speaks of his work and his glory. In verse 21, he says, And a, a woman, when she is in travail, has sorrow, but because her hour is come, her hour has come. Well, what hour would that be? Well, that's when she's starting to feel the birth pangs. And, you know, if, you're, if you've had children, you start to time them because you're curious uh, when the actual child is going to come. In John chapter 13, verse 1, the Lord uses that language with respect to himself. It says in verse 1 of John 13, he says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come. He's getting ready to go to the cross. His hour has come. He's speaking about the hour when a woman is travailing and has sorrow. Jesus is about to go into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's going to pray, and the Scriptures is going to tell us about how it was. He um, sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. It's a tremendous travail is coming over him. What is going to be the result of the travail? He's travailing, of course, because sin is being um, imputed to him by the Father. He's going to go to the cross, and then he's going to give birth to the church. And we see that in uh, 
in a spiritual context when he's on the cross and these um, um, centurion um, presses in his side a spear and water and blood comes out with John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 5, verse 7 and 8. You'll see it in there about how that represents the church. That takes us back to Genesis chapter 2 where the woman um, is taken out of the side of man. So Christ through this process is in great travail, but he's going to give birth to the church, which of course brings great joy um, to him and indeed to us. And he says that in Hebrews, I think it's chapter 12, where he talks about he um, he's the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy that was set before Christ? You and me, the saints, the birth of the church. So in the same context as is true with the woman here, God trailing to give birth, and then she receives joy that a man is born into the world. So the man is the cause of both the anguish and the joy. And, and so it is. The, the church, the sins of the church cause great anguish for Christ, but it's also the source of great joy because then he'll be reconciled to the church, will be united with him forever. And so that is a joy that is set before him. Now, in terms of your and my spiritual walk, there is the death of the old man that is somewhat difficult for us um, to, um, to bear, but there is joy before us because the day will come when we are no longer um, in this flesh. We will have received our glorified bodies and we will not have this battle where the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And we will do the things that we uh, desire to do and the things that we love to do in Christ. Our deacon read chapter John, uh, Romans chapter 8 where it talks about the whole creation groaneth and travaileth together in pain, waiting for the redemption, waiting for the birth of, of the church. So the world is in this travail. You have been in it, and Christ was in it, certainly, as he uh, went to the cross. Um, so verse 22, and he says, Now therefore, you now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh away from you. Your hearts are going to rejoice because you're going to receive the Holy Ghost. You will apprehend and understand what has taken place and why it has taken place, so what the necessity of it was, and what the results of that are going to be. Verse 23, and in that day, that will be the day you receive the Holy Ghost. You shall ask me nothing. Why not? Because the Lord will begin to reveal things to you through the Holy Spirit. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And I've shared with us that the context of that is according to his will, by his authority. Verse 24, that comes from 1 John 5, 14, by the way. In verse 24, where we'll conclude, it says, Heretofore have ye asked nothing in my name. They've asked nothing according to his authority, according to his will, because they don't know it, because they have not received the Holy Ghost. It's not until you've received the Holy Ghost that you can understand and appreciate who Christ is. Think about the disciples on the road to Emmaus. They had been with him. He's walking with him. This is after the cross. They don't know who he is. And he's with them. And then it's not until after he opens their eyes that they can see and appreciate um, who he is. And so it is with the disciples. Now they're with him, and he's been explaining all these things to them, and they, they simply do not understand it. Um, in verse 32 of Luke 24, he says, And they said one to another, Did not our hearts burn with us while he talked with us, by the way? And while he opened up the scriptures to us, they didn't understand it. Verse 31, and their eyes were open. It was not until Christ opened their eyes, over in verse 45, till he opens their understanding that they might understand the scriptures. So the, 
Unless, if you don't know Christ, if you don't understand who he is, if you don't know his will, you cannot possibly ask anything in the Father's name, according to his will and according to the Father's authority. When you do that, well, well then he will answer your prayer, and it, it will be in the affirmative. I am going to read 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, so we can see it for ourselves, what it says there. Because... Uh, TV evangelists love to pull out these promises uh, and take them out of context. He says in verse 14 of 1 John chapter 5, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he heareth us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. So if you want your prayers to be answered in the affirmative, and lots of times he says no for now, they're going to answer them later, but right now just wait, be patient. Um, You have to know the Lord. Um, You have to read his word. You need to pray for understanding and appreciation of the things that are set before us. So I'm going to close with that, and he says, your joy may be full. I can uh, experientially, I know that my joy is full. I know it positionally, but in an experiential sense, when I am walking in obedience to the Lord and when I am uh, prayerfully in a relationship with him where I, the, where I feel like the communication is open and we are um, speaking one to another, you know, through the Holy Ghost in a spiritual sense, then my joy really is full and I appreciate it. So we'll close with that.